Welcome, bienvenidos. This is Nuestro South Podcast, Loud and Proud. We are picking up our conversation from our previous episode on Las Polleras de Mississippi. Part two takes a deeper dive into the history and context of these polleras through the research and work of Professor Angela Stisi. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation and take some of this history to inform your own experiences. This is for us. I think the first big picture uh, context thing that I wanted to talk about is if you could just do a <laughs> sort of short recap of how, what was the rise of, of the poultry industry in central Mississippi? Uh, like so when it happened and kind of who those actors were that established that uh, in Mississippi. Okay well the poultry industry in in Mississippi but also really across across the south sort of um, began to gain uh, to grow into an industry mm -hmm. um, around World War II. Before that you know most people were raising chickens in their backyard for consumption at home, maybe they had some extras and they were able to sell them or sell the, the eggs. But it was during uh, World War II that American consumption of poultry began growing and they were able to sort of ship it um, across, the, across the South and across state lines, across the country and, and the industry began to rise. And in Mississippi, which is the place that I know most, um, mm -hmm. most closely, at that point, the labor force was mostly poor white women, mm. so working class white women, maybe single women, maybe women whose um, husbands were away at war. Um, and it stayed a largely um, female and white workforce uh, in Mississippi through the 1960s. Now, as you are probably well aware there was a civil rights movement that was growing yeah. <laughs> right, um, across the region and across the country um, in the 50s and 60s. And in the 60s, there were a lot of really important gains in the civil rights movement um, around voting rights, right, around civil rights. Um, and by the late 60s, black folks in the South were turning their sites to economic rights, yeah. right? We should, uh, a, a lot of folks were still working on farms mm -hmm. uh, in people's homes as domestic workers. This was essentially the same work that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had done under slavery, yeah. right? In some cases in Mississippi on the same land that their, that their families had been enslaved on. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a great context to include because um, I mean, so I'm a person in, in, in North Carolina and I'm a young person who has grown up in North Carolina. Um, and so even though I've grown up in parts of the South, I don't think I have a context of like what a state like Mississippi uh, is right now or what it was historically. So it's super interesting to hear some of that history. As someone from the South, sometimes I hear folks talking about like from Northern states and they talk about the South as this like very stereotypical thing and I'm right. here experience and I'm like wait what do you mean so uh what about the what, what does Mississippi look like to what did it look at in like 1950s 1960s and what does it look like today what are those two differences like uh population wise or culturally wise 
Well, um, the gains of the Mississippi freedom struggle and the civil rights movement more broadly um, led to openings. So not just in voting and civil rights, but also in work opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, so for the first time, black folks could get a job in a chicken plant, for mm -hmm. example, or in other manufacturing. So to some extent, I guess, if you wanna compare sort of pre-civil rights to post-civil rights in, the, in, this, in these sort of rural poultry areas, these jobs, which today we look at, you know, as really grueling, dangerous, and certainly underpaid jobs um, were opportunities yeah. for folks to move up out of the types of economic positions, or at least uh, relationships with white landowners and, and um, home, like patronas, what am I thinking? <laughs> um, right, the women that they worked for in, in yeah. homes. It gave them some degree of, of um, independence. I feel like that sense of like, it's a step up is something that either I hear or can identify with as like something immigrants really like yeah. either adhere to or like identify with is like, pues ya pues crucé un paso más or, you know, I, I got an extra dollar <laughs> or something like that. So yeah, I can definitely sympathize with, with some of what you say there. Yeah. And I think early on when black folks gained entrance into poultry, this was a, this was a real gain. Yeah. But then as the decades wore on, you know, they thought, oh, gee, this, this is really hard work. We, mm -hmm. hey, we are being exploited, right? People who are being exploited by capitalism, uh, more often than not, we know the position yeah. that we're in, but we don't have the power to change it, right? But throughout the actually late 70s into the 80s and the 90s, Black poultry workers in Mississippi started organizing mm -hmm. and they were trying to get enough power to demand better working conditions and a raise in their wages. And it was in this moment, actually, in the early 90s, when they were starting to gain traction and they mm. actually, and they, they had union representation and the plants were about to be forced to bargain with them over these issues, that the plants declared a labor shortage mm. and went searching for a new class of workers to bring into the plants. And if you look at the, the ways in which this was being talked about in the industry in the 90s, they're saying they're, we just couldn't find enough people to work on the line. And you talk to Black workers who were around then and they'd say, oh, there were plenty of us and we wanted to work, but we had demands. And instead of meeting our demands, they decided to look further afield for a new sort of how could they flood the labor supply so that they didn't have to meet these demands. You mentioned a phrase in in what you write, or oh, I think it's a title, and it, and it mentions uh, it's like speaking from like the from working to the fields, or and and to the factory, and that the factory becomes the new, I don't know if it's the new farm or like the new kind of. I forget oh, I think I well at one point in the book I talk about I I use the term plantation capitalism, mm -hmm. and thinking thinking about how there's a literal move from the plantations into the into these factories. Yeah, from these like big agricultural things and now it's like operating within the factory. Before going to search for this, I guess, new labor or new human to come replace it. Yeah. Why were they so, like, what was the population within Mississippi or other parts of the South that kind of essentially segregated or very like discrete group of like 
owners and, and workers? Like what, what did they look like in terms of race and in terms of socioeconomic status? So by the time the chicken plants in Mississippi went out to recruit Latinx immigrant workers, the plants were run by um, white men almost mm -hmm. exclusively and staffed almost entirely by black women and black men. Mm -hmm. Folks who were part of that um, integration of, of African-American folks into the plants would tell stories about how it was in one plant, it was a matter of weeks before all the white women left. So mm -hmm. there was this very sort of hard line of what's, what's, what's the work of black folks and what's the work of white folks and that the two couldn't mix. Um, I met very few white poultry workers who weren't in management when I was doing my research. That's interesting because I think I've, the, the industry that comes to mind that I've seen more visible during my time growing up in North Carolina is, I mean, to say a couple is, it's like construction work, right? And that's kind of how I identify the, the groups and where I see populations of immigrants or similar nationalities just overrepresented really and then like if you have I've worked at a restaurant I've I've served <laughs> so as a server you're like you have people speaking in English serving but if you ever go to the back of the kitchen whether it's a American burger restaurant an actual Hispanic restaurant or even a Chinese restaurant <laughs> it always seems to be like a Hispanic or immigrant uh, population working the kitchens so I guess what I what I want to ask is like for those people who were white poultry workers who were, were non-management, how did they kind of like interpret the place that they were in or the workers they were with? I don't know, how did they rationalize what they were doing or the work they had? Hmm, that's an interesting I don't know if you, if you got an answer from them about that. Yeah, Axel, I really didn't because there were a couple of white women who were involved in one of mm -hmm. the unions. And I mean, they were com in complete solidarity with both black mm. and immigrant workers. Um, and I wanted, I had hoped for the opportunity to get to know them better. And they were killed in a car crash. Oh, gosh. One night coming home from the casino, along with, with their partners who I, who were immigrants, actually. Mm. Yeah, that was really very tragic. But I had just sort of started interacting with them through a union campaign that was going on and thought, wouldn't it be interesting to hear what these women have yeah. to say about their experience so I don't know you I think you probably don't want to include that in the podcast <laughs> but no, I can say you know I, I, it's possible though actually what what you what you're even sharing is even more interesting and I'll, I'll share why personally is because in the place I am right now rural Samson County it's heavy on agriculture really it's heavy on not not there are chicken like huge massive chicken coops and maybe we can describe what those uh, look like, but, uh, and there's also meat processing plants as well. And so you have immigrants working there, but what I've seen with some of the younger generations of students I work with is that they're coming from mixed families as well. And not mixed mm -hmm. just in terms of their nationalities, but even in terms of the generations of immigrants. So maybe it's like a second, third generation immigrant and they're identifying more as Southern, or it's, you know, you could say, I guess, to some extent, like, biracial or bi-ethnic I don't know what the terminology would be of like either American females who are white and typically like Hispanic males who are doing all the work so that's something I've noticed and been like oh this exists which is interesting yeah, yeah. 
yeah and these folks are having children like you're saying and and these are part of nuestro south right <laughs> these young people that are that are coming up um it might be worth saying you know different parts of the south are you know the south is not a monolith and mm -hmm. the demographic makeup of of different parts of the south is very different i know you've looked at stuff related to appalachia um yeah no there's there's i mean i've if you actually were to travel across the South and these different states, their histories are different. The ways their economies have developed are different. I mean, we're talking about Mississippi and I don't know if there's besides poultry, but there may be other like very like strong sectors. I mean, if you look at a map of North Carolina, like you can see the specific parts where hog farming is dominant. You're not gonna have that in the mountains just mm -hmm. by a simple fact of geography, but different things end up happening in those areas. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of give a small bit of recap, just in a concise question. And how did race come to play in those like labor or organizing efforts in the 70s? And how does it play? What role does it play now, more recently in the last couple of decades? Yeah, so I think the story that I'm telling is that, um, you know, in the moment that Black folks started to organize for better wages and working conditions, the plants brought immigrants in. Mm -hmm. And that this is very much... An, an industry that is thinking and strategizing about what is the, the lowest possible labor cost and how do we construct that through an exploitable labor force, mm. whether, whether that's, you know, disempowered black folks that have just come off, um, you know, out of the plantations decades ago, or whether that's new in immigrants today who don't have sort of the cultural connections or don't have the language and, and maybe don't have papers, right? And so yeah. are very also easily exploitable. And I think in the moment that immigrants start to organize, this industry is also thinking ahead to what's the next, yeah. what's the next possible labor force to keep, to keep costs down and to keep profits up. That's such a difficult problem to solve. We were talking about these different workers on the plan and even some like workers, females who were white, and actually maybe you had partners that were immigrant or Hispanic, that I guess they had this consciousness, consciousness of being supportive, mostly probably based on their own, knowing their own histories, knowing their partner's stories, and then knowing what they experienced, you know, on the job conditions. Uh, but getting to do that across like a diverse set of like individuals, groups, uh, is much more difficult so you got a chance to do some of that work actually, which is super difficult through the Mississippi Poultry Workers Center, trying to do this kind of deeper level of organizing to get folks to get an awareness, not only of their own condition, but each other's, right? In terms of different mm -hmm. groups. Can you share a little bit of what the work of the uh, Worker Center was about and then kind of what you were able to develop as well as part of your time there? Yeah, I got to work with the with the Mississippi Poultry Workers Center over a period of about six years. Mm -hmm. And we started as sort of this loose collaboration of folks who were seeing the transformation of their communities and their workplaces because of the recruitment of new Latin American immigrants from across the continent, too. I think it's worth saying, right? Yeah. That the the heterogeneity of among Latin American immigrants in this moment in Mississippi, and even till today, I think yeah. is, um, is really uh, broad. And so 
I think in, in the North Carolina context, folks often think about people from Mexico or maybe <laughs> Guatemala, right? Yeah. Maybe Honduras. Yeah. Um, in Mississippi, there was a large community of Mexicans and of, mm -hmm. of um, Guatemalan Maya mom people, mm. uh, but also um, Peruvians and Argentines and Uruguayans. And there had been Brazilians and Dominicans. And it was just, so even thinking about the immigrant population yeah. as some sort of um, cohesive group didn't work right. But the, the work of the worker center Oh, we did some of that sort of um, inter-Latinx <laughs> identity work and, and community building, but a lot it's of like our trying work... to build an identity that isn't supposed to exist, but you try to build it based on like, I guess, <laughs> worker solidarity. <laughs> oh man, that's tough. Yeah, yeah. What we found was that unions, there mm -hmm. are some unions in the chicken plants and their work was unions in the South are so limited in the work that they can do because they're so under-resourced and there's so much anti-labor sentiment um, in our region. So, you know, the unions were lucky if they could service the contracts that they had, if they could help workers who had a grievance file a grievance and if they could keep their contract at a plant and not, not lose it. But they were really appealing to workers to come together on the basis of being workers. Yeah. And what we were learning at the worker center was that people didn't, they didn't share an identity that mm -hmm. enabled them to create a common vision or to talk about their problems in ways that would allow them to relate to one another and imagine, you know, to recognize that they were sort of in the same boat. Um, and so the work, some of the work of the worker center involved trying to build those bridges and helping, um, Spanish-speaking new immigrant workers learn the histories of racial oppression of our country and of the South and of their coworkers, right? And, and help black worker leaders understand who immigrants are and where yeah. they're from and why they're coming and know they're not here to take your job, right? <laughs> um, and sort of talking across differences that are really misunderstandings, miscommunication that's fomented, I think, by the industry in order to keep workers from coming together. Yeah, that's such a necessary like work because um, <clears throat> I've shared this before with, with others, but if you were in work conditions like this, if you are being exploited to, to different degrees, but if your work is, you know, essentially exploiting you, you know, if we talk about like working in factories or something like the poultry uh, processing plants, like it's like constant, right? And by the time you leave work, you're like, you're exhausted, you have family to take care of. It's like, so there's no time to kind of develop this awareness and organizing and do all this extra work to get the conditions and rights that you deserve as a worker. And I've seen it with my family. So I can see how difficult it is to develop this awareness when you're trying to survive, right? On a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I wanted to ask, because of that, from some of the work, uh, folks that you worked with that were immigrants, um, because I'm curious about this myself, and I've discussed it with my parents, how did they identify, did they have this kind of concept or familiarity with like a sense of like labor rights, mm -hmm. uh, whether from their own countries or from other places that they had worked in, uh, in the U.S.? I ask this because, for example, 
my parents have never experienced something like, hey, let's join a union. I'm not sure how much of a concept they have about that. But then I have a couple uncles in New York <laughs> that because it's New York, they have this idea of like, oh, estoy con la unión ahora, ya me van a dar buen pago. And so it's like, that to me is just like kind of impressive to realize that even just across those states, there's those differences. So the workers you worked with in that time, did they have this concept of unions and labor organizing from somewhere? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, it really depended on, on folks' life stories, right, and where they had come from. Um, we saw that, um, for example, folks who came from Argentina had a real mm -hmm. sense of what unions oh. did and were enthusiastic and were actually like super frustrated that the unions weren't doing like finally <laughs> right um and you know that wasn't true maybe for workers from mexico where mm. unions were you know part of this 75 year sort of chokehold on the on the government this is not exactly related to the labor question but i think important and something that you uh, that that your last comments made me think of a lot of the black worker leaders that we worked with in the at the worker center were so ready when they learned about immigrants' histories and stories mm -hmm. to build alliances with them because they saw so clearly from their own histories mm -hmm. and the and and the struggle and the freedom struggle of the U.S. South um, and of the whole United States, really. Yeah. Um, right. They they could make very quickly make connections between their experiences of oppression and yeah. those that they were learning about from their um, Latinx immigrant co-workers that they hadn't that they hadn't understood before yeah one of the things that we found was that it was much harder for most Latinx workers to make that leap to identify with black co-workers and I think in part it was you know not having the same uh, recent history of racial and class struggle um, in the same way, but also, I mean, some people did, right? There were yeah. certainly struggles happening all across Central America around the same time and more recently, but whiteness has such a hold on all of us, yeah. right? One of my scholar heroes, George Lipsitz, talks about the possessive investment in whiteness and mm. how how all of us in the country, arguably in the globe, have an incentive to invest in the structures of white supremacy and to try, in order to try to benefit from those structures. Yeah. And so part of what I write about and what we thought about a lot in the worker center was how anti-blackness among Latinx immigrants is really impeding the ability to work across racial lines. And that's not an easy or comfortable thing to talk about, but I think it's really important. Yeah, and I think when you were talking about that, when you were referencing, I was like, I guess what came to mind for me is generations. Generations and education to some extent, but um, mostly generations because, for example, my uncle or my mom who came as, I would say young adults, um, still had this just in general, this concept of like what this country was supposed to be or what it was supposed to look like or what you were supposed to find in it, right? And for me, give, having the op opportunity to grow up within this country from a young age, very young age, and then like, I guess, see it and witness it and be able to like 
speak and understand what was being done or what was being said, my awareness of it is a bit more expanded than my mm-hmm. parents were. And then this whole other dimension of, of race, yes, it operates or of whiteness operates within Latin America and it definitely continues here. And I, I guess that's, those are the two things that come to mind, um, kind of that generational gap of like, like you were saying, Black Americans just understood not only their own context, but how they could relate, how immigrants were being exploited already uh, in similar ways, right? Uh, but we don't come with that knowledge. <laughs> we get dropped in this country and then there's, take some time to realize a lot of those realities and a lot of those things that are just like structural and that we think we can benefit from, but not necessarily. So for me, yeah, I've, my frustration sometimes is that I've had the time to give myself to the reading, the listening, the, <laughs> the, the just arguments and debate. But our folks um, who are like my parents who are, who are working on a day-to-day basis don't. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, with those that you were able to work with, you talk about popular education efforts and kind of this way to go beyond I guess, academia or like structured school education, how does kind of those popular popular education efforts help start developing some of that critical awareness by folks and then just even bridging some of those uh, efforts across groups? So the popular education models that we drew on in that work uh, and that many people draw on come out of Latin America, right? Out of Mm -hmm. a history of struggle specifically the work of Paulo Freire mm-hmm. in Brazil, um, who really sort of turned education on its head in the sense that uh, when you're working with any group of people, rather than assuming that they're, they're like empty vessels that need to be filled with knowledge, what happens when we recognize that the, that the lived experience that people bring into the room with them is a resource mm. and that everything that we know from life can be utilized to help uh, sort of to help us understand a new concept or to help us uh, relate to someone else or to help us build a political consciousness. And so the education work that we did through the Workers Center was really about building how do we do how do we build political consciousness and recognize this whole person that has come in with a whole with a world of knowledge to share and to relate And so we used those types of popular education techniques and theories to help people, A, begin to understand what their basic rights are Mm -hmm. in um, particularly immigrant workers, but also US born workers, what their rights are as as workers, what their rights are as humans um, and as people in the United States, regardless of documentation, right? Regardless of, of legal status. And then how, once, we, once they understood those rights, how could we then um, begin to relate to one another as humans with particular experiences with the structures of power, with oppression, with resistance and struggle and um, begin to sort of map those out. So we had a, a timeline that stretched across a wall. Maybe I can show you some pictures of a a big wall of a room Um, and different immigrant and US born worker groups that came in would plot out sort of the history of their people. 
and their own histories. Yeah. Um, and then we could see the ways in which those sort of intersected and they layered and they built, a, uh, they built on one another um, over time using pictures and, and stories in ways that made people, helped people recognize, learn more about their own, um, their own people's histories and also, um, yeah, begin to connect with other people's stories and based on that imagine working together what what were a couple a couple things that just kind of surprised you i know this may have been a while back but just surprised you as things that people just came to realize and, and acknowledge as realities that others faced that they had no clue uh about beforehand oh um let's see one thing that always sticks with me to this day is um Black worker leaders who, you know, we talked about histories of slavery and of the, of the, um, of segregation and of resistance and the Mississippi freedom struggle and sort of their own stories in that struggle and mm -hmm. their parents. The thing that really blew their minds was that there were Black folks in other parts of the Americas. Oh. <laughs> like the fact that that the transatlantic slave trade yeah. slave trade was not just to the southern us yeah it was to brazil it was to the caribbean it was up and down our continent our yeah. continent america right yeah um oh my gosh that was just huh. incredible to them and i remember there was one woman who was a real leader in her workplace who was um afro nicaraguan Mm -hmm. And she said people would come up to her all the time and say, what are you? <laughs> like, she, it did not fit in people's worldview that you could yeah. be Latin American and Black. And yeah. that was world, that was transformational for people. Oh, that's super interesting. Because that's, um, I mean, I, I'm familiar with, with even the opposite of that happening, right? Uh, <laughs> just Latinx folks being like, oh, there's Black Latinos who, you know, they just... Oh, that's so interesting uh, because, you know, in, and this is why like the South maybe is, is an important context in itself, right? For, you know, maybe black folks to realize that, you know, the Latino workers that are coming from aren't just, let's say Mexican folks who look somewhat brown or vary from all different shades, but um, you can have someone go to New York uh, like a couple of my family members who I guess in the U.S. they are racialized directly as black but there's kind of a benefit that they get by especially if they're undocumented immigrants by kind of like blending in within the you know Puerto Rican Dominican communities or African-American communities that exist in places like New York City so mm -hmm. that that makes things so <laughs> so specific so nuanced and so in, in a sense weird when you have those conversations actually in a place like rural Mississippi or rural North Carolina or Georgia yeah. where you know the history seems very binary totally yeah some other examples that I can think of are um when when we were looking around for popular education materials that we could use we had a hard time finding things I think there's a lot more now for having intergroup dialogue um, but one of the sources that we found really useful was teaching tolerance through the Southern mm -hmm. Poverty Law Center. 
and we used a few of their films. And one was just as a sort of an introduction to the violence that was Jim Crow mm. um, and the ways in which folks of conscious of conscience fought back um, and sort of a introduction to the civil rights movement. Um, and we shared that with a workshop of Latin American folks who were just, you know, I think their jaws were on the floor mm. and they said, I had no idea that that had happened here. And so recently, and it just also, I think opened people's perspective to, to the possibility of considering what their black coworkers, um, you know, perspectives might be on race and exploitation in the chicken plants or yeah. in the South. I think one of the necessities for that is um, from my experience, there's a lot of, I feel like a lot of immigrants tend to easily buy into this sense of, you know, rugged individualism or personal responsibility that like, if you give me the work, I'll make it, I'll, you know, get myself out of this and, you know, pick myself up and, you know, do well. And then from that, there's the extension of like, why can't everyone else, right? Uh, and when you have mention of status and maybe you're an immigrant who's <laughs> working yourself almost to death, right? Without any basic rights or benefits. Uh, but, you know, at least you have that car, at least you, you know, you're able to pay the rent. And without a status, there's kind of that, that friction and tension of like, why can't others do it, right? And I think it definitely comes into play with, um, with the, immigrants and then and towards the black population or the African-American population in this country. So until you kind of get some grounding experience to understand that history, uh, I feel like a lot of immigrants tend to like just buy quickly into that uh, narrative of personal right. responsibility. <laughs> right, and we are the hard workers, right? In comparison to, to these other folks who don't wanna work. Yes, yes. And um, mm -hmm. you mentioned that, uh, you mentioned that a little bit, that kind of, uh, even the way that immigrants themselves would perceive, they kind of get this benefit of like, oh, yeah, we like you, because you work. And then anybody else who's not typically black or African American, you guys are lazy. How did that play out? Yeah, so I think in, in the Deep South, where we have these, you know, such um, sort of deeply felt histories of white supremacy and and exclusion the narrative about immigrants as hard workers is exactly as what you're saying right it goes hand in hand with the narrative that black folks are lazy and don't want to work um, and i think you're right that a lot of immigrants come in and not knowing sort of why their african-american counterparts at parts at work might be taken a 10 minute bathroom break or throwing soap in the chiller to get the machines to stop for a while, right? They're not seeing that as resistance. They're seeing yeah. that as laziness because mm. that's the dominant narrative. I think it works the other way too, Axel. I think that this narrative of hard work mm -hmm. um, makes a lot of Americans who don't understand the precarities of undocumented status assume that immigrants are, or Latinx are just hard workers because it's like in their blood. 
right? And, and without understanding sort of the nature of the structural precarity that, that undocumentation yeah. places on people such that they feel like they don't really have a choice yeah. but to keep their heads down and work. Yeah, my, and it can get so nuanced. My, my parents spent over a decade working for a Hispanic immigrant owned business, right? And for almost over a decade, uh, they probably took two to three weekends off for years and years, right? And it's been interesting having them kind of get this awareness or consciousness where now they're like, they work Monday through Friday, (laughs) they have weekends off, they, you know, take some time off. And it's like, I don't know how long it took for you to get here, but yeah, for, for years and years as an early immigrant, you just kind of like, you're just stuck. There's no way you can ask for anything. You just have to do what you were told to do. How did they, how did they get to this new space where they're not working weekends? Like, interestingly enough, it's by, they've developed, they, they, they changed work, uh, but the way, uh, the, the location that they're working out now, I think the relationship with, with the boss is a bit different. Uh, I guess you could, you know, if I were to try to like analyze it, they're a bit more proximate to each other. So mm. the owner is kind of like, it's a smaller business, they work together. And so there's a little bit more of that, like mutual respect and understanding. And to be honest, the other part is that my stepdad has been doing this for a long time, right? And at that point, (laughs) unfortunately, but like, yes, after 10, 15, 20 years, you finally make it to a position uh, where you can like, you know, set your terms. Uh, But that's probably too long. (laughs) Well, and I think if in that position, if you're earning a little bit more or you've been here longer and you've been able to save little by little by little, you're slowly, I think, put in a position where you feel like you have a little more freedom to set the terms of your labor. Yeah, yeah, you're willing to take that risk. I have one more kind of broad question or topic. I wanted to just discuss um, a little bit about talking about black and brown labor, talking about chicken plants generally in the South. Um, What are some of the things uh, or challenges that they have encountered, especially in times such as a pandemic or with uh, Latino immigrants, um, what they experience with heightened immigration enforcement, especially over the past four, five, 10 years um, in these settings like Mississippi, rural South, uh, poultry worker. Well, I think you're asking this at the early 2021 and a lot has happened. I mean, I think that all of us are coming out of a period of extreme trauma. Mm. I don't know if that's the wrong word, but um, I don't know, these four years of of this administration that's been so, so white nationalist and so hateful toward immigrants of all stripes and backgrounds and certainly of African-American folks and, and anyone who stands up for mm. against white supremacy. I think we're in a moment now where we can, maybe we're feeling hopeful, but people are really beleaguered too after you know all the police brutality on black folks around the country and the raids that have um, that really escalated under the Trump administration in Mississippi, the the um, the chicken plants were were raided in the summer of 2019. Mm. 
in a massive raid, actually the largest immigration raid in US history um, happened at these chicken plants. Um, and nearly 700 people were taken in the raids, um, which of course affected thousands of children and pretty mm. much everybody in, you know, the in rural communities, everybody's connected, right? And the and the yeah. economy is all connected. And in these poultry towns, I think in Mississippi as well as in North Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and Arkansas, right? The the economy revolves around poultry. Um, so this the the immigration raids have had really, I think, reverberating um, effects on the schools, on local economy, on families, and on um, the chicken business as well. I have, and then of course there's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I have two questions. Yeah, and that's a whole other one. Hopefully we'll um, discuss a little bit more of just, because that one's so specific and, it, and it's impacted people just by default because of the conditions that they're made to work in. Uh, but to the topic of um, immigration, like chilling effect, one, I wanted to ask, can you, if you could elaborate why these like small poultry towns exist and like, what do you mean by that? Uh, and then, and then two, I'm curious, like what the politics of, you know, the folks that run <laughs> the plants and then that hires the label, where do, how do they either rationalize or do they react against some of these like immigration raids efforts? How did poultry, poultry towns come to yeah. be across yeah. the South? this industry founded itself in the South from the very beginning. So well, like 75, 80 years more, 85, close to, since the 1930s, right? Um, that this industry started, started really becoming an industry. And um, it's been in the South practically the entire time because there is a large pool of poor folks who are willing to work for less because there is land that is um, relatively uh, inexpensive um, because there's anti-labor legislation which makes it easy, easier to, um, to operate because there have been lots of um, tax incentives to attract mm. these businesses. Um, and so they set up in small rural areas where there's lots of land around to grow chickens um, and where there's really no other economic opportunity. Yeah, so it's kind of like a trapped into that. Yeah, and, and you know, back in the day, this, these were local companies that were set up by men in, white men in these areas. Today, they're almost all bought out by, by multinationals. I have just the two last closing questions that you can answer briefly to wrap up. What is the poder that Southern black and brown workers can possess? Well, I think we saw in the work that I was describing for you at the Mississippi Poultry Workers Center that when folks recognize a shared path, mm -hmm. both looking backwards and looking forward, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of potential if, um, if folks can see each other as fully human and as someone with whom I can align my fate, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of recognizing, yeah, that, that we have a shared fate and that our, that our coming together 
is necessary in order to confront these really entrenched issues of racism, structural racism, capitalism. I mean, these are huge, these are huge um, institutions, right? That, that shape our lives. But I think that um, black and brown folks together with other allies have the, we have the power to change the system. That's definitely a process and a journey. And I'm, I'm excited. I think there's, I think at least for what the purpose of this conversation is to kind of help younger generations also start exploring that and get a glimpse through the stories we share and the conversations we have about how, what that history is and how they plug into it, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, I have hope, I'm hopeful in, in many ways despite the circumstances. Um, and lastly, based on your experience or your work, especially you know, given the broad knowledge you have of South, whether it's Mississippi or more closer to movements here uh, across North Carolina, um, what is something that for you represents this concept of Nuestro South that we're trying to you know, explore? Mm. I have a couple of thoughts. And one I think is, really along the lines of what you all are doing with Nuestro South, which is there's a whole generation of young people that are growing up that were, when I was in Mississippi doing this work, were children, but are now coming of age and feel themselves to be fully American and fully Southern. And <laughs> this is home, yeah. right? And, and, and I think that the work that you all are doing with Nuestro South to, you know, reappropriate and underscore that that belonging right is really important and it's certainly something that I've seen in Mississippi that didn't exist you know in the 90s when our when when folks started arriving as we as we just heard or in the early 2000s when when we were doing our work but the other answer that I would give to this is not about children who either are born here or came young and grew. It's about, it's about new immigrants and yeah. immigrants who've been here for a while who have, you know, as our friend said, really put down deep roots and yeah. have thought about going elsewhere, but this is home. <laughs> like I can't pull this root up, right? Um, yeah. I think that, that there are a lot of, you know, in my work, I've met a lot of really brave people who did speak up in the face of injustice, despite all the risks, um, because they felt it so deeply in their bones, you know, a question of justice, but also sticking a claim that I belong here too, right? And that this is this is our South and this is our country, new or old. This is this is yeah. where I'm sort of um, placing my bets or putting in my putting down my roots. So I totally feel that, and honestly, I think. I think for immigrants, time is almost like almost like with children. I guess time just kind of passes for you and you have no awareness of like what 10, 15, 20 years down the line may be, right? Those first four or five years are you go through a roller coaster of experiences and emotions. But as you start maturing, as my family comes to you know 15, 16 years, I think we start realizing that hey, this is, this is something we can own. This is something that can be ours. 
and it's very weird to start realizing that while still being in like you've mentioned this kind of precarious vulnerable state <laughs> given the circumstances but it does happen it does happen and i think people um there's a shift mm -hmm. in a lot of immigrants at some point from an orientation toward home and the plan of what i'm going to do when i get back to yeah. at least for folks who choose to say to an orientation to this is home right yeah. and this is where i belong yeah well thank you so much uh professor angela stacy uh we appreciate your time uh this has been a great conversation uh and we hope that it's useful for many other folks to think about race think about labor think about southern mississippi mississippi polleras chicken plants <laughs> and how that can apply to their own history yeah well thanks so much for having me and for making space for both of us to to talk about our experiences and and what it has meant to become to become southern so much. <laughs> i, I really, like that to become southern i mean for me it was a choice right i wasn't born here either but i came and and this is home well thank you so much